Let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come here and worship. We thank you for the opportunity to learn more about you, Father. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the tongues that we have so that we can sing praise to you, Father. Now, Father, as we begin to study your word, reveal yourself through your scriptures. Please rid me of self, Father, and speak through me. Allow these words to be a comfort to our souls and for us to grow stronger and closer in our walk with Christ. Amen. Thank you so much, worship team. Y'all are amazing amazing. Happy Sabbath, church family. Happy Sabbath, church family. You don't have to say it twice. Happy Sabbath, church family. Amen. Amen. I'm going to start off by reading to you Job 38, 1 through 7. If you would like, please find it in your Bibles. I will read it in your hearing, but if you would like, you can find it. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Wow, the the power of God in those statements. That is God speaking directly to Job. And to get there, we're going to look at this story of Job, this story of selfless righteousness in suffering. And we're going to look at how Job focused on the power of God to make it through his storm. We all have storms, but let me tell you, Job, he had a storm. We all know the story of Job. He was a very, very excellent, wisdom-filled, loving person. God himself said that he thinks Job is the most wisdom-filled, best creature on the earth. And Job was very well-known. Job was well known for his wealth in the community. Job was known for his wisdom. It says later in the book of Job, it says, Those were the days when I went to the city gates and took my place among the honored leaders. This is Job chapter 29. He says, The young stepped aside when they saw me, and even the aged rose in respect when I walked in. Job was well known, well respected. People came to Job when they had a problem. Job 29, 21 through 24 says, Everyone listened to my advice. They were silent as they waited for me to speak. And after I spoke, they had nothing to add, for my counsel satisfied them. They longed for me to speak as people longed for rain. They drank my words like refreshing spring rain. When they were discouraged, I smiled at them. My look of approval was precious to them. Like a chief, I told them what to do. I lived like a king among his troops and comforted those who mourned. 
You see, Job was at the top of his game. But because of two plot lines intertwined, he's going to lose all that. The, the book of Job is actually two stories woven together into one. And the two stories match up and link together so beautifully. The literary um, device used is dramatic irony. Anyone know Shakespeare? We know Romeo and Juliet. At the end, when we see Juliet take the drug, and, and she goes to sleep, and then Romeo comes in thinking that she has died, he takes the drug and kills himself. And we, the people, actually know the story. We actually knew that Juliet wasn't dead. That is the dramatic irony. When the audience has more information than the characters do. And that is what happens in the book of Job. As I said, there are two stories. There is Job, the well-known man, the respected man in the world. He has 7,000 sheep, 300 cattle, 500 teams of oxen, 500 donkeys, seven sons, and three daughters. But there's also the story in heaven. God is there with the sons of man, and the accuser, Satan, is there as well. And God has a conversation with the accuser. He asks him, where have you been? And the accuser says, oh, just to and from on the earth. And Jesus then, or God then says to him, have you noticed my servant Job? God begins to brag on us. How beautiful is that? That God brags about us when we do good. He says, have you seen a servant as righteous and holy as Job? <laughs> I mean, just to have God not only know who you are, but really, really love you and really know that you represent his character. But of course, Satan, being the, the twisty-turner person that he is, he doesn't necessarily um, believe that Job will be so righteous if he loses everything around him. He says, you've put up a hedge over Job, and that is why he is so righteous, and that is why he loves you so much. But take away all his success, take away all he has, and he will curse you to your face. So God acquiesced, and Job loses everything. We know the story. Some Sabians attack his oxen while they're plowing and just demolish them. Fire from heaven takes away his sheep and his shepherds. His camels and servants were walking when Chaldean raiders come and attack them. Um, children, his children were feasting in the eldest son's house when a hurricane comes and washes it all away. Oh, man. Imagine losing everything you have. In this, though, Job did not have any upsetness in his heart. He did not have any pain. He says, I came into my mother's womb, and when I was naked, no, I came into my mother's womb, and I was naked, and Lord, if I must go naked, so be it. And in all this, he never cursed the name of God. So, again, God is in heaven, having court with the sons of man, and Satan, the accuser, is there again, and he says to him, the accuser, where have you been? The accuser says, I've been on earth. And then he asks him again, have you seen my servant Job? You took away all he has, everything from him. You stripped him down to just the person, and still he blessed my name. 
So Satan says, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to his face. Still, Satan doesn't believe. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that Job is really as righteous as God says he is. So God again acquiesces, and Job goes and puts boils on Job. Satan puts boils on Job. From the head to his feet, he has boils. He's, he's in pain. He's sitting on the side of the, ro on the road, just picking at, at, his, at his scabs. When Job later on talks about what happens to him, Job 39 and 10, he says, And now they mock me with vulgar songs. They taunt me. They despise me and won't come near me except to spit in my face. Do you remember the man I'm talking about? This is Job. This is the wealthy guy. The guy that had the huge family. The guy that everyone came to when they had a problem. He is now on the side of the road being spit on by people as they walk past. Why? Because he has nothing. But still in this, Job says, which to me is, is my favorite verse in the Bible because it speaks so much to, to my personal selfishness. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? I mean, you could really end the book right there. I mean, that's the end of chapter 2. And, and he really answers the whole question. Are we that selfish? Are we th that much of children that we can be happy when there's, when there's blessings flowing, but when there's rain and adversity, we get angry? We can learn so much from just that statement. But I really wanted to focus in on what actually gave Job this strong faith? What, what is he looking at that allows him to continually push through such a horrible, horrific time? And that is where we have this interwoven plot. Because in heaven, we know, as the audience, we understand that Job is blameless to God. Job is righteous to God. Job is actually being used as an example right now to show the accuser. But Job doesn't know that. His friends, the people on earth, don't know that. But we, the audience, do. And we're going to take a look at the conversation Job has with his three friends. And as Job is sitting there, as I told you, he's sitting there in silence on the side of the road, picking at his scabs, his three friends come and sit with him, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they actually sat with him in silence for six days, which was really the best thing they could have done. Have you ever been just really, really downtrodden and someone just comes and just sits with you? They just come and they just hug you. I mean, I can think of my mother. I mean, she knows when I'm upset, but she also knows I'm not going to say a word. So she'll just, just come and hug me. Just come and comfort me. Yeah, that's what, that's what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar should have done. But unfortunately... They spoke. <laughs> they opened their mouths. And we'll see why that is a problem. But before they open their mouths, Job actually talks first. And we get to see the real, the real life humanity in Job. How Job teeters between depression and sadness, but then also teeters between real life challenging God, trying to find out, what have I done wrong? What is it that is making all this happen to me? So, 
in hearing all of this depression talk, all of this sadness from Job, the first person that talks is Eliphaz. And the book of Job is considered wisdom literature because it's an older book. They say it's from the time of the patriarchs, before Abraham and Isaac. And they believe that, the scholars, because there is no mention of Abraham and Isaac throughout the entire book. And most other books mention that covenant. So they believe this was before that time period. And in books of wisdom, the older person talks first. Because obviously, they've lived on the earth longer. They have wisdom. And Eliphaz embodies that elderly wisdom. He is gentle and sensitive with Job. He says, Job, don't, don't, don't be depressed. We all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. Just repent and you'll be restored. He says suffering is good for humanity. How many of us have heard that before? Suffering is good for you. This, this discipline will, will teach you to be better on the other side. All you have to do is just repent. Now, from the surface level, listening to what he's saying, it's, it's not wrong. He's not, he's not saying untruths. These are things that are directly from the Bible. But we know, as the audience, we know the dramatic irony that is going on, and we know that his application of the Bible and pushing it upon Job to say that he is a sinner is where he is wrong. And he is focusing on that almighty power of God. For example, in his third speech, um, 20, Job 22, 6, he says, you must have lent money to your friend and demanded clothing and security. Yes, you must have stripped him to the bone. You must have refused water for the thirsty and food for the hungry. If you return to the Almighty, you will surely be restored. So please clean up your life. He pleads with them. Keeps telling him, you must have done something wrong, and that's okay. Don't feel bad about it. Just repent, and you will be good, and all is well. But... Job is righteous, and Job has wisdom, and Job knows that he has not sinned. And, and Job, as he has these conversations with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, he continually gets stronger and stronger in his advocation for himself, even going so far as to challenge God to say, God, if, if I did something wrong, come here and tell me now. Let me know. Let me be blameless. But... Unfortunately, he doesn't get that yet. His friends keep talking to him. And Job throws out questions, like in Job 3, 23, he says, Why is life given to those with no future? Those God has surrounded with difficulties. Just keeps throwing out random questions, keeps pleading for God to come down, keeps telling his friends, I have not sinned, and if, if, if I did, I would repent, you know me. I mean, but they, they don't believe him. And then comes Bildad. And um, Bildad is, is kind of my favorite because he reminds me of myself. He's very just kind of quick to the point. He doesn't mess around. He says, look, 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 I am actually tired of listening to this. How long are you going to go on like this, he says in Job 8, 2 through 3. You sound like a blustering wind. wind. Does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? And he relies on the omnibenevolence of God, the ultimate good of God. If anything is wicked— then obviously it's not of God. He says to Job, obviously you have had so many calamities happen, you must have upset God. And he says in his second speech, terror surround the wicked and trouble them at every step. Hunger depletes their strength and calamity waits for them to stumble. Disease eats their skin, death devours their limbs. 
They are torn from the security of their homes and are brought down to the king of terrors. He tells them that you must have sinned because this is what happens to wicked people. Wicked people get hurt. And Job just doesn't really vibe with that because Job is telling him, man, come on, look, do you you think that I'm dumb? I mean, do you not understand that who you're talking to? He says to him, if you would only believe the words I'm telling you and know that I am not lying, if someone wanted to take God to court, would it be possible to answer him even once in a thousand times? Continuing to challenge God, continuing to plead for his innocence. It's like he doesn't even hear his friends talking, and they continually get more and more frustrated with him. The third friend, Zophar, who the first two spoke around three different times, Zophar only speaks twice because he is just so frustrated. He's, he says and accuses Job of filibustering, talking without actually making a decision. And he actually rests his argument in God's all-knowing power. He says, come on, look, Job, maybe you haven't sinned and you know about it. Maybe you're doing something that, you know, you don't really know about yet. Maybe, maybe there's a sin that you are, are hiding in, in your soul and you just need to seek it out. Job 11, 5 through 6 says, if only God would speak, if only he would tell us what he thinks. If only he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom is not a simple matter. Listen, God is most likely punishing you far less than you deserve. He tells them that. If you listen, each and every friend is putting the judgment and putting all the blame on Job. Each and every one of them are are telling Job that he is the reason and the cause for all of his calamity. Zophar even says, if only you would prepare your heart and lift up your hands to him. They're telling him that you, you can get out of this. Just repent. And we know, again, as the audience, we know because of the dramatic irony that is taking place in this story that Job is blameless. Now, each of the friends actually focus, as I've mentioned, on a specific power of God. Eliphaz focuses on God's ultimate power, his almighty power. Can a man be profitable to God? Is a man even, even worth anything to God? Though he who is wise may be profitable to himself, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous, or is it to gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Is it even worth anything that you're righteous? Why, Job, do you continually question God? You've sinned. Get over it. Bildad, similar, tells him, God is a God of good, a God of goodness, not a God of wickedness. If all this wickedness has happened to you, you must have sinned. Just repent. So far as well, he focuses on God's omniscience. God knows everything. Can you solve the mysteries of God? You don't know those. So just relax, repent, and you're good. Now, the reason this story is so, so interesting to me is because I really— I I can feel where each and every friend is coming from. They're all giving biblical truths to Job. They're all speaking directly from the Bible. They're using phrases and, and, and understandings that have been taught in the Bible for years, but that is not their error. Where their error lies is their application of God's truths and how they are pushing their own agendas upon Job. 
We as the audience know, we know that Job is blameless, but they did not. And they decided to take it upon themselves, upon their own wisdom, to actually impart what was going on to Job. Ellen G. White says in commentary, Bible commentary about the book of Job, she says, his friends came to comfort him, but they tried to make him see that he was responsible by his sinful course for his afflictions. But Job defended himself and denied the charge, declaring, miserable comforters are ye all, by seeking to make him guilty before God and deserving of his punishment, they brought a grievous test upon him and represented God in a false light. And God tells them this in verse 42-7. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me, as my servant Job has. And that's the crux, ladies and gentlemen. The friends came there to give their wisdom to tell Job what they thought the cause of his suffering was, but they were wrong. And God calls them out for it and actually says, you know, Job is right. Job is the one telling the truth. He is blameless before me. Then before Job actually has that, which is my, one of my favorite conversations he has with God, there is a chapter, Job 28, to where he talks about wisdom so beautifully. He describes wisdom as a spouse that we must long for. Job 28, 23 says, God alone understands the way to wisdom. He knows where it can be found. For he looks throughout the whole earth and sees everything under the heavens. He decided how hard the wind should blow and how much rain should fall. And this is before he even had his conversation with God. Throughout his depression, throughout his, his challenging of God, he always found the time to still bless God's name. And, and that's comforting to me because there are times when I get sad. There are times when, when I, I am confused and, and it kind of feels like I'm sinning. But as we see in the Bible, it's okay as long as we continually bless the name of God and have faith as Job did. And Job, he wanted that courtroom battle with God. He wanted that, that conversation. He wanted God to challenge him. He brought up all these questions to God. Everything that he wanted to be answered, it was now time for him to get that answer. And God speaks to him, and that's what I read earlier. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Who is this that questions my wisdom? Job 38, 31 says, Can you direct the movement of the stars? Do you know what it is like? To, to let the winds and the oceans come out of their place? Do you know where the oceans lie? Do you know where the oceans end? All these questions, all these powerful, powerful talk that, jo that God gives to Job, Job is just dumbfounded. He says, God, I'm sorry, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand, for I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. But that's—that wasn't it. I mean, he really came at God, and God was not done with him. He says, are you as strong as God, Job? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right, put on your glory and your splendor, your honor and your majesty, right? You wanted to ask me all those questions. Now, 
be God. He asked Job, do you know why I created the alligator? Do you know why its spine is so heavy and why its, its, its bones are like iron? He asked Job questions about the nature world to, to kind of juxtapose to him, how could you possibly understand my reasoning for, for what I'm doing when you don't even understand why the grass flows the way it does? You don't even understand why the animals are the way they are. You don't even understand why they act the way they do, but yet you want to question me and my greatness and my splendor. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our God is a powerful and, and really humorous God. I mean, it was just beautiful because God asked so many questions of him, and God—no, Job asked so many questions of God, and God answers none of them. He answers none of them doesn't even give him the time of day. But what he does show him is his might. He shows him that power. And what to me is the most special part about the book is Job at the end. Job 42, 4 through 6. He says, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions your wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Well, I have heard it all. I had heard you and heard of you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I have said, and I sit down in dust and ashes to show my repentance. See, that's the beautiful part. Job, a wise righteous man. I, I would assume he's very headstrong. Um, he was wealthy, so he, he had to have his, some confidence in him. He had to have some, some couth about him. When he asked questions of God and God gave him no answers, he was satisfied. He was cool with it. It actually made him trust in God even more. And that's the part that is interesting to me. Satisfied by that power and that glory of God, that was all Job needed. You would think reading through this whole book that Job is upset because he lost his family. You would think he is upset because of all the money that he's lost, all the, all the respect from the people that he had, it was all gone. You would think that's the hard part for Job. But what's interesting, being hidden and being lost from the ways of God was what bothered him the most. He couldn't see the ways of his father. He couldn't see the person that he loved and cared about the most. That's what broke him up. He could care less about the materials, care less about his life even. I mean, he says so many times, God, just kill me. I don't, I don't need to be here. If that's what you'd like, no problem. But always was he focused on the power and that glory of God. And he urges, he urges us to seek that same wisdom from God. I really urge you to read Job chapter 38, I mean Job chapter 28 as he talks about wisdom. Even Job chapter 31 because he actually walks through the Beatitudes. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. He walks through each and every one of those and says, Father, have, have I not been a peacemaker? Have, 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 have I been, been unjustified in some of my doings? He walks through each and every one of those 
asking God if he has broken one of the Beatitudes. And, and that's the Sermon of the Mount, which is far, far off in the future. But yet he had the wisdom and understanding to know what specific cues were important to God. So church family, may we remember in our daily lives to be more like Job. May we remember to focus on being blameless in the sight of God. Oh, how I want to be bragged on by God. Amen? How awesome would it be for God to say, have you seen my servant Julian? Right? May we remember that if we focus on God's power and on his wisdom, like Job, we can make it through the storms. We can make it through anything that happens to us because we have full confidence and full faith that it is God's plan. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for that power. We thank you so much for the plan that you have laid upon us, Father. We thank you for the opportunity to learn more. We thank you for the salvation that you've given through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to worship. As we leave here today, may we focus on the story of Job, Father. May we focus on his, his urge to understand the powers and wisdom of God. And may we also seek that wisdom so that we can be ready when you return. Amen.